Turn in your Bibles to John chapter number 20. John chapter number 20. While you find your place there, I have for years uh, done a lot of uh, counseling. Uh, you know, premarital counseling, marital counseling, things like that. And folks run into things, and I don't care how beautiful of a marriage you think you've got. Amen. You'll have sooner or later, you're going to need some help from the Lord. And, uh, you know, there's there's guys that, that that's all they do. They do marriage counseling. And um, I, let, I, I'm going to give you, if I can, I'm going to give you just a little bit of marriage counseling this morning. That'd be all right. I know you didn't come to Easter Sunday for marriage counseling, okay? But, uh, you know, if, if if you're here today, and if you look down, and if you're wearing a shirt like this, and you don't understand why, then you have a lying, duplicitous wife. You understand? And you need to pray for your marriage. You say, preacher, what if I don't? Well, your wife may still be a liar. I don't know. But I know if you're wearing one of those and don't understand why, I know you got some some business to tend to at home. Amen. And uh, so we, uh, I, I knew when I walked in, I pulled into the parking lot down, looked at Brother Brandon, our bass player, and he's wearing the same shirt. I said, I think we're wearing the same shirt. He said, I think we are. I thought, well, that's odd. You know, it's Easter. I mean, I, you know, it, it ain't nobody's getting custom shirts made. You know, we're all buying them at the Dillard's or wherever. And so I thought, well, you know, that's strange. I walked into Sunday school. I looked over and Brother Brock was wearing one. Well, that's kind of weird. How, you know, I looked back and I saw Brother Caleb was wearing one. And I thought, you ever just get that sick feeling in the pity or stomach? Something has happened here. Amen. And uh, so I, I praise the Lord. Amen. Some people give you the shirt off their back. Uh, but, you know, you don't have a lot of choices around here. Amen. John chapter number 20. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Let me welcome you here on this Easter Sunday. It's a resurrection day. Amen. For every child of God, every day is a resurrection day. But praise the Lord that we've chosen uh, to take this time to honor and remember and to uh, worship in light of our risen Savior. And so I'm thrilled that you're here today. I know we have a lot of visitors here today. hope you feel welcome and at home in the Lord's house. John chapter number 20. Verse number one, the word of God says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, speaking of the grave clothes of our Lord. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus saith unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master. 
Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you. Lord, what a blessing to be in your house today. Lord, most of all, our minds are arrested by the reality of the resurrection of the risen Lord. Lord, it's not some religious fantasy. It's not some pipe dream. It's not some thing that we as religious people grope to and, and cling to. Lord, it is an empirical, historical fact that you rose bodily from the grave. Lord, we base our faith upon that reality. And we, with boldness and confidence and assurance, come to you today knowing, Lord, that we're not praying to a dream or a delusion or a ghost or a memory, Lord, but we're praying to a risen Savior. We're asking that you'd speak to hearts today that this, that to many is a religious truth, would become a real truth to them today, that they would meet the risen Lord. Lord, they're not going to see him with their physical eye. They're not going to hear him with their physical ear. But I pray that the sweet Holy Ghost would speak their name as you did long ago when you spoke to Mary in the garden. Lord, that you'd make them realize, cause them to see that you love them, that you know them, that you're interested in them, that you care for them, that you have a plan for them, and that you offer salvation to them if they'll just come to you in faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the word of God. I pray that you'd use it in our hearts and minds. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you're a visitor with us today, you may not know, but over the past couple of weeks, we have been following sort of a, a thread of thought through the Word of God. Uh, we have been looking at the morning moments around the close of our Lord's ministry. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by morning moments? Well, mornings, days, uh, moments that was in the early hours of the day. Uh, when you go through and study the closing days of our Lord's earthly ministry, you will find there are four in particular, but there are three that we've noticed, and this is the third today, three mornings that are mentioned in the Word of God. Now, you might say, well, preacher, that's not significant. I mean, every single day begins with a morning, and I'll agree with you, but the Holy Ghost of God in the Word of God emphasizes, points out, singles out, describes that these events happened in the morning. And I don't think that's by accident. I don't think anything in your Bible is there by accident. So we've been taking the time to consider that and thinking about what morning is. What does it signify? What does it mean to us? And I began to think of a few thoughts. You know, one morning is a time of illumination. It's a time when ideally the sun comes out. All of a sudden light is cast over a dark land and there are things that you can see in the morning that you could not see during the nighttime. And then second, morning is a time of transition. It's a time of change. You're changing from the night to the day, from the dark to the light, from oftentimes inactive to now active. It is a moment when things are moving, shifting, transitioning, and changing. And then morning is a time of anticipation. When oftentimes you sit and look with expectancy at the day that is set before you. Well, if you were to look at these morning scenes around the close of our Lord's ministry, you would find that each of these thoughts are embodied by one of these scenes. A couple of weeks ago, we preached on the idea of the morning of cursing. You say, preacher, that sounds foreboding. Well, it was the morning that our Lord, before He went into Jerusalem the final time, He cursed a fig tree as He was passing by it. I won't re-preach the message, uh, but it, He was in doing that, revealing some things about God's plan for Israel as a nation and God's plan for our lives, how God deals with us and what God's doing in our life. This was a time of illumination. God was revealing some things through Christ to the disciples and to you and I. 
Last week, with the Lord's help, we preached on the morning of Calvary. Uh, there's never been a morning like Calvary. It was a moment of uh, profound transition. Hey, everything changed at Calvary, and Calvary changed everything. Calvary changed things up in heaven. The Bible says He ascended on high, and He gave gifts unto men. Calvary changed things on this earth. Hey, and nothing's ever been the same uh, since the Lord Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. And then He even changed things under the earth. The Bible says He descended into the lower parts of the earth and took captivity captive and led them on high. I'm saying Calvary changed everything. It was a deep moment of transition. This morning we have come, not unexpectedly, to the resurrection morning. Uh, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us in both Luke's Gospel and Mark's Gospel that this uh, scene took place very early in the morning. It's the scene of when our Lord rose victorious from the grave. And let me call it this. It was the morning of conquering. It was the morning when enemies and foes were thrown down. It was the morning when you and I as Bible believers, uh, you and I as Christians, we became more than conquerors through Him that loved us. It was the day that death and hell and the grave were conquered and that men could uh, obtain salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But beyond all that, it was a great moment of anticipation. Uh, the resurrection shows us a lot of things that were done and are done. But it also looks forward to some things that God is going to do. And when we look at this moment in our Lord's ministry, we cannot help but notice, particularly through the lens of this woman by the name of Mary Magdalene, we cannot help but see all of the hope that bloomed and blossomed when the Lord Jesus got up inconquerable and incorruptible from the grave. I'm telling you this this morning, and I made the statement in Sunday school, we talk much about the crucifixion, and appropriately so. Hey, listen, Christianity would be nothing if you try to take the crucifixion out of Christianity. Whatever you've got left over is not Christianity. Uh, but I will tell you this, the central truth uh, to the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament church, even more so than the crucifixion, was that of the resurrection. Uh, they walked around telling everybody, not just that somebody died, hey, people die every day, but telling them that somebody got up from the grave, that he got up from the tomb, that it's an empty tomb, that the Lord Jesus rose victorious. Hey, there was three men at least we know of crucified on that day on Calvary's hill, but only one of them got up under his own power from the grave. And so it was deeply significant. It was the foundation of New Testament Christianity and, and is today for every true believer, every true child of God. And so when we think about this as a moment of anticipation, a moment that casts our thoughts forward to think about some things uh, that both from that moment in time and even from where we stand, we now stand in anticipation of excitement, expectancy of. There are three thoughts that I find in our text today, and I want to share them with you. Let me say, number one, that at this moment, and this story is recorded for us for this purpose, it's given in anticipation of a new reality. Now, I don't want to preach my message from last week, but can I remind you, Calvary changed everything. And when the Lord Jesus got up from the dead, it, it hearkened to, it beckoned to the reality that everything had now changed. And the way that men dealt with God and the way that God dealt with men was forever changed. And now there was a new standard, a new covenant, a new system, a new concept in how men would approach unto God. 
I would say this, that in this reality we find three things mentioned here. The first is this, that this moment reminds us and it's recorded in anticipation of the reality of a living Savior. Now we've chosen John's Gospel for it contains the majority of our thoughts. But I'll readily admit to you that nowhere in our immediate text does it describe that moment when Mary, though it describes her doing it, it does not describe her looking in the tomb and it explicitly saying that the tomb was empty. What we're told is that when John looks in there, when Peter looks in there, they see the linen clothes, but they don't see the Lord. Mary looks in there. It doesn't really say what she saw, but it just tells us that she's weeping. But the Bible does not leave us without an explanation of what they saw when they looked in that tomb. Listen to how Luke's Gospel records this moment. It says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. This is Mary Magdalene, the other women that are with her. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. It came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee. I think that oftentimes, particularly here in the West, and particularly, listen, we ain't just in the Bible Belt here in East Tennessee. We're the buckle up. I mean, you can't go two, two feet without seeing a church somewhere. And I think sometimes it gets lost on us, the great profound impact of the reality of the resurrection. You understand that we're not serving some dead uh, martyr. We're not serving some long bygone guru. We're not serving some religious thought leader or cultural thought leader who is nothing more than a collection of records and books. Uh, we're not praying to some Buddha. We're not praying to a Muhammad. We're not praying to a Joseph Smith. But we and we alone, proprietary to Bible Christianity, worship and serve and love and know a risen Savior. Man, this was changing everything. Now all of a sudden they would have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now they would have one that they knew intimately and that knew them intimately that would ascend to the very throne room of God and would be there as a mediator on their behalf. And now when they would come and talk to God, they were talking to Him in a deep, personal, intimate way to one that had conquered death and was alive forevermore. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say this morning. Coming to Christ is not a matter of affirming a doctrinal creed. Now, there are certain things you've got to believe or you ain't going to come to Him. Uh, if you don't believe He's the Son of God, you have no reason to come to Him. If you don't believe He's the Savior of men, you have no reason to come to Him. If you don't believe that uh, that He died, that He lived a sinless life and died and was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, I don't know why you'd come to Him if you didn't believe that. So I'm not divorcing the concept of, of belief from the idea of salvation. We have to believe some things to be saved. But one of the great mistakes that I find in modern Christianity is we have reduced the idea of salvation to merely affirming and acceding to a doctrinal creed. Well, I accept that those things happen. That's not what Bible Christianity is. It's not just acknowledging things happen. It is the personal, volitional choice to then come to God through the person of Jesus Christ, to come to Him and say, I am a sinner, I need to be saved, I can't save myself, I'm going to quit trying, but I'm going to ask you based on what you did on Calvary. That's where the belief comes in. Based on what you did on Calvary, I believe you're able to save me, and I'm going to ask you to forgive me and save me. Now, why can we do that? I can tell you why. Because He's a living Savior. He's who we're coming to and asking to forgive us 
and to save us. Why? It's with Him him with whom we have to do. He bought out your sin debt on Calvary's hill. You're not going to get to heaven without coming to Jesus. Hey, He's the way, He's the truth, He's the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. If you've not been by Him, you're not on your way. It doesn't matter how many doctrinal points or ideas or theological truths or catechisms that you agree with and accept and are willing to say are true. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is coming to a living, risen Savior and saying, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Please forgive me of my sins and and take me to heaven with you and make me a part of the family of God. I'm not saying it always has to be said the way I just said it, but I am saying this. You're going to have to come to Jesus to get born again. Uh, We have a living Savior. He is the conduit through which we approach unto God. He's our advocate. He's our uh, mediator. He's our intercessor. He's our daysman betwixt us was the language that Job used. He's the one that gets us to God. If you won't go to Him, you won't get to God. doesn't matter how many things you agree with. doesn't matter how many things that you slap as titles on your life, on your social media, on your cultural identity. doesn't matter how many tags you attach to whoever you claim yourself to be. That's not what gets a man to heaven. It's not saying, I'm a Baptist. It's not even saying I'm a Christian. It's coming to Christ and seeking forgiveness from Him. So now all of a sudden they were considering and living in light of the reality of a living Savior. Now look with me at verse number 12. I've always been amazed by this. The Bible says this, that when Mary stooped down, she looked into the sepulcher. This is what she saw. She seeth two angels in white, sitting the one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Now again, nothing in your Bible is there by accident. Could have just simply said, by the way, as other gospel records do, that she saw two men there. That's what Luke says, saw two men there. That's all that it says. It describes something about them. It doesn't say anything about where they're at, where they're located, how they are sitting, where they position themselves. But John's gospel goes out of its way to tell us that these two angels were sitting. And they were not just sitting anywhere. They were sitting one at the head and one at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Let me show you how perfect and inerrant your Bible is. Did you know even that truth is not without significance? You know, all throughout the Old Testament, when men were to come to God, this was the process through which their sins were to be dealt with for Israel as a nation. Uh, the, The high priest would take and sacrifice an animal, a bullock typically. And on the Day of Atonement, because Israel as a nation had sinned before God, he would take the blood of that animal and he would go into a place that's called the holy place. Uh, Now, I talked about this a couple weeks ago or last week, and I'm not going to belabor you with it, but the Old Testament tabernacle and then temple had three areas in it. It had an area that was the outer court. It was called the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could go into that area. Then it had a place that was called the holy place. Now, you had to be a priest to go in there. And in that place, the priests would carry out their typical work uh, day to day of preparing, butchering animals, preparing sacrifices, uh, preparing the various things that had to be used in the ministry and ministration of Old Testament law. And then there was a place called the holy place. Now, the holy place was the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And in the holy place, only one person was allowed to go, and that only one time a year. The high priest would be permitted once a year to go in with the sacrifice for that day of atonement. And he would go in, and here's what he would do. He would go before the Ark of the Covenant. You know what the Ark of the Covenant is? Oh, you've seen Indiana Jones. Don't pretend like you haven't. I've had people ask me before, preacher, where did the Ark of the Covenant go? You know, I mean, it's mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. Then just disappears. I always tell them it's sitting on some storage lot in Hollywood. Amen. That's where it went. (laughs) But uh, the Ark of the Covenant was the meeting place between God and mankind. And the Ark of the Covenant was a box. It was a, a four by two box and, and, and they had several things were in it. The, the Aaron's rod that budded was in it. A pot of manna was in it. The tablets of the law were in it. And, and it was a manifestation 
of God's presence. It was God's throne on earth, so to speak. And on top of that Ark of the Covenant was a place. It was called the Mercy Seat. It was a little platform, and on either side of that were two golden angels, cherubims, that were graven statues that sat over it. And they looked and they beheld. They looked inward at the mercy seat. And so the high priest would go once a year and he'd take this blood and he would approach under the mercy seat. And he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and on the Ark of the Covenant. And God would literally look down and behold that a sacrifice had been made. He would see that blood on the mercy seat and for another year, he would not uh, impute unto Israel their sin. For another year, he wouldn't wipe them out. But every year they had to do this. You say, preacher, why'd they have to do that? Because the blood's of bulls and of goats. I mean, God's not a sadist. He doesn't just want death for death or whatever that might mean. But it was a picture of a coming sacrifice. And so here was how men approached unto God. We find here in our text this morning that all of a sudden, now the terms on which God dealt with man had changed. We have a foreshadowing of that. In the Old Testament, the priest would go and he would sprinkle the blood between the two angels in the place of sacrifice. God would look down on it and say, mm, I like that sacrifice. I will accept that sacrifice for the next year. Listen to how the book of Hebrews describes what happened when the Lord Jesus died and rose from the dead. It says in verse number 3 of Hebrews chapter 9, it says, after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So it's saying, after that veil, in the place called the holy place, it says, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. It says, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Couldn't just anybody go walking in there. Only the high priest could, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. You say, preacher, what does all that mean? It means all that was a shadow for a coming sacrifice. It was never meant to make men perfect. It couldn't justify them. couldn't make them righteous before God. It was always meant to cause men to look forward and say, there's a better sacrifice that's coming. The Bible says this in verse 11 of Hebrews 9, but Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by, by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The Bible tells us that all them earthly things were shadows, just pictures of heavenly things, and they pointed to a coming sacrifice. What are the angels sitting on either side of the place where Jesus lay remind us of? It reminds us that He is that perfect sacrifice that was offered for your sins and for my sins. And God, Father, look down upon that broken body of the Lord Jesus. He saw it and said, oh, I'll accept that sacrifice. I'll respect that sacrifice. I'll honor that sacrifice. And ever since that day to this, there's never been a need of another sacrifice. In other words, they were living in anticipation of the reality of a lasting sacrifice. And these angels reminded us that He is the mercy seat, the meeting place of God and mankind. And His broken body is the sacrifice and He is the high priest. He's everything. 
when we come to Him, we don't have to go to anyone else. Uh, listen, I, the, I don't know how you read your Bible and find a way to lose your salvation. Amen? When I read my Bible, I'm just reminded that I can't lose my salvation because He has eternally purchased redemption for us. We find in here they're living now in anticipation of the reality of a lasting sacrifice. No more going back and having to give offerings. Jesus is the offering. And we can come to Him. When He said on the cross of Calvary it is finished, it was finished. And He is complete. And we are complete in Him if we come to Jesus Christ. We have then a very tender scene here in our text. Look with me at verse 13. Mary doesn't understand the import of all these things. Luke tells us that these angels said to her explicitly, He's not here. He is risen. She's still casting about in her mind and she doesn't understand everything that has transpired. And, and they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, in verse 13, and I know not where they have laid him. When she had thus said, she turned herself back and she saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. I want you to stop and think about what she says here. She sees him, but she's trying to see him the way she's been seeing him. She doesn't recognize him. He doesn't look the way that she's expecting him to look. And she's saying, I'm wanting to find him in the way that I have found him before. And if you know where he's at, that's what I want. I want to go back to what we had. And if you find him, let me know. I'll carry his body away. Listen, she, she would rather have a, a, a familiar corpse than a living Christianity. Can I just stop and say this? Hey, there's a lot of folks who would rather have a familiar corpse than a living Christianity. They're fine with their old dead religion that ain't got God within a hundred miles of it. They're satisfied to sit and ride a church pew all the way to the gates of hell rather than admit that they're lost and come to Jesus Christ. She wants that old way. She wants that old way of, of Him appearing and her perceiving Him. But Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto Him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, all of these sacrifices and ordinances that were given, Paul calls these things the rudiments of the world in the book of Colossians. And he tells us in the book of Galatians that all these things were given as an illustration to mankind until the day would come that God would send His Son and show all of these truths plainly. One commentator said it this way, that Old Testament worship was the kindergarten of Revelation. It was object lessons and examples. You know, the greatest way you can teach a child is to show them, to give them an illustration. Any of our uh, workers that work in our children's ministry will tell you one of the most valuable things they can do is an object lesson. And Old Testament revelation, and what I mean by that is the way they worship God, the things that God expected and asked of them regarding their laws and their customs and their rituals and their rites and, and their form and ceremony of worship. All of those were the kindergarten of Revelation. They were object lessons to teach them something else. Here's what they wanted. They wanted to see something. They needed to see something to know something about God. Did you know in the New Testament, the Bible even says to this day that the Jews still seek after a sign. They want to see something. Mary wanted to see what she was used to seeing. She wanted to perceive Him in the way that she was used to perceiving Him. But I want you to notice, it was not the visage of the Lord that spoke to her. It was the voice of the Lord. She's looking at Him, but she's looking through unregenerate eyes. And she can't see Him for who He really is. Oh boy, when that voice speaks, and He says, Mary! She says, Whew, I know that voice. It tells us this, that listen, they're now, this is given in anticipation of the reality of the living Scriptures. Can I tell you, 
when Christ came, when He died on the cross, when He rose incorruptible from the grave, it changed the way God speaks to mankind. Now, God is a miracle-working God. God still works miracles to this very day. But the purpose of miracles now is no longer for God to communicate with people. So, preacher, why is that? Well, because we have a Bible. Now, it's not the vision we're looking for. It's the voice that we're listening for. Listen how it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 1, God, who at sundry times, that means different times, and in divers manners, that means in different ways, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He spoke in all kinds of ways in the Old Testament. He appeared in visions. He appeared in dreams. He performed miracles. He called prophets. He did all kinds of things to communicate with man in the Old Testament. But the Hebrews writer says that now he hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, that's great. He's spoken unto us by Jesus, but I don't hear the voice of Jesus. I don't see Jesus. I'm not having any kind of great, grand, glorious religious experience. So how will I hear from God? You know, the Bible tells us how. Uh, In the book of John, it tells us how we can see and hear and perceive Jesus. It says in John chapter number 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Now, you remember what the Hebrews writer just said? Hath in these last days spoken unto us by some whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world. The Hebrews writer says Jesus is the Creator. He made the world. John says that the Word was the means by which the worlds were created. kind of sounds like it's talking about the same thing, don't it? All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You say, now preacher, who is this great Creator, this giver of the Word? How can I know who He is? Well, John tells us down in John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, the way that God communicates to mankind now is through this precious book. This would change everything about the way that they interacted with God. It would no longer be through the types and shadows of Old Testament worship. It would no longer be through visions and through dreams. But now God would give us a Bible, a perfect, inerrant, inspired, preserved Bible that we could go to and say, I know this is the Word of God. I know what it says are God's words. I know I'm getting the mind of God and the heart of God and the truth of God from it. Preacher, I want to hear from God. Then open your Bible. Preacher, I want to hear from heaven. Then open your Bible because you have the voice of God on those very pages. So this was given in anticipation of a new reality. Now, whenever Mary approaches the Lord or the Lord approaches her and he speaks to her, he says, Mary, she turneth herself and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master. And immediately Jesus says something. Jesus saith unto her, verse 17, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father, and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things unto her. In other words, here's what changed. Their relationship changed. I want to be abundantly clear what I'm about to say. I'm not implying anything lurid or lewd about the relationship the Lord had with Mary Magdalene. It was as sinless and spotless as every relationship He ever had. There was no carnal knowledge. There was no intimacy that bespeaks any kind of relationship as would be with a man and a wife. And if somebody told you that, they lied to you and they didn't get it from the Bible because the Bible doesn't teach that. But certainly the Lord Jesus had a relationship as the Lord and Master of Mary Magdalene. He was the teacher, the rabbi of her life, the revealer 
pillar of truth unto her. And she had believed him to be a man, a prophet of God sent from God. And she had had a very close relationship with him, as all of Jesus' followers did. Undoubtedly, her inclination when she knew it was him was to do what yours would be or what my inclination would be, to run up and to hug his neck or to fall at his feet and to worship him. But he stops her and he says, wait, 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 Mary. That cannot happen right now. Things have changed. And now the way our relationship is, is different. Can I tell you this? After Calvary, men have a new relationship with God. There is a difference between the relationship Old Testament believers had with God and the relationship New Testament believers have. Now, it doesn't mean they were any less saved or secure in light of heaven uh, than we are, but it does mean that we have a different sort and different type of relationship. Notice three simple thoughts here. Notice first off the proximity of this relationship. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. Now, you and I have a thousand questions about that. Why is it that she could not hug him? Why is it that it was significant that he not be touched by anyone, a human being, before he descended to the Father? Would it have imputed some sort of lack of virtue or some ungodliness or some sinfulness? I've got a thousand questions. You've got a thousand and one. Let's get together in heaven and ask the Lord about it. There's a lot I cannot answer about it, and a lot I'm not going to attempt to, but there is something I want to notice. He doesn't say, touch me not. He says, touch me not yet. I'm not yet ascended to my Father. You know what that implies? There'd come a day when she could. She couldn't right now, but things was getting ready to change. He was going to send to the Father. And when he did, then all of a sudden, they'd be able to resume in a new light and in a new way that relationship of friendship, closeness, intimacy that they had enjoyed only a short while ago. You know what it reminds me of? Hey, you say, now preacher, we can't reach out and touch the Lord. Oh, sure we can. We don't reach out and touch Him with physical hand. But don't you know the Bible says that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Oh, sure, we can reach out and touch Him, not with the physical hand, but when we reach out in faith with hearts broken, with needy lives, when we reach out to Him with confusion in our mind and spirit, we say, now, Lord, I don't know what I'm going through. I don't understand it. Lord, nobody understands. Nobody knows. Hey, somebody knows what you're going through. Best illustration I ever saw or heard of this was a man describing being in a music store. And uh, it was a real high-end music store, and they, they sold harps in this place. And the man was uh, telling his friend, the man that owned it was telling his friend, he said, I want you to see how in tune these two harps are. And he told his friend, he said, I want you to go over on the other side of the store, and I want you to stand by this harp. And then the man that owned the store went on the other side, and he said, now when I pluck a string here, watch what happens. And he plucked a string on that harp. Those two harps were so in tune that when he plucked the string here, the string on the other harp began to vibrate. What was happening, preacher? Well, that's on the same wavelength. And when those sound waves started moving through the room, all of a sudden, what was moving this string started moving that string. Hey, it ain't exactly the same, but they're sure enough a parallel. You know what happens? The things that all break our hearts break His heart. The things that trouble us trouble Him. When we come to Him with hearts broken, say, Lord, now I need You, Lord. I need guidance, Lord. I need wisdom. Or, hey, let me even go a step further. When you as a lost sinner come to Him and say, now, Lord, I'm lost, I'm broken, I'm undone, I can't save myself... I want you to please forgive me and save me. The very heart of God beats at that prayer. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I see the proximity of this relationship. Then I want you to notice the privilege of it. Notice what he says here. He says, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I send unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. I think, again, this is one of those moments that can be easily lost on us. 
we lose sight of what a radical statement this is. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, God was known by a lot of names, but Father was not typically one of them. He was known as a, a, a myriad of variations of the name Jehovah. He was uh, known as the name Elohim. There were even times he was uh, described as Adonai, meaning Lord. And, and there's all these names given to God in the Old Testament. But the name Father is a rare one. There are times it's used in connection with Israel as a nation. But the idea that a person, that just an, a, an old plain individual, just, just somebody that's just a nobody like me, could look up in heaven and talk to the God of all creation and say, Abba, Father, my heavenly Father, was a radical concept. Our Lord introduced this theme and idea to them in His earthly ministry because He would often talk about God in that way. In fact, it's, it's almost without exception. The first time they ever heard Him called anything but Father was just three days earlier when He hung on the cross for their sins. Then He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But every other time, without exception, when He talked about the Father, when He talked to the Father, He called Him the Father. Say, so preacher, why is that? Well, it's because he's God's son, of course. So he would cry and he would talk to him. He would, he would have these intimate conversations with God like God was his own bosom father and blood relative and like God was, like, like he was just right there. Like you could just talk to him because he's just there and he loves you and he's your father. I've often thought, you know, undoubtedly the disciples were puzzled by that at first and then they probably got a little jealous of it. They probably, if they had anything about him, sometimes thought, well, I wish I knew him as Father. Well, wish I could just talk to him. Wish I knew. I mean, I know if I call my daddy, I know he's going to hear what I have to say. He don't always pay attention to it, but he's going to hear what I have to say. And my children likewise. I may not hear what they say, but I always hear what they say. But our Heavenly Father, He don't just hear, He hears. He listens. He perceives. He's attentive. And I'm sure they probably thought, man, boy, wouldn't that be nice? And then all of a sudden, here's the Lord, and He says, hey, listen, Mary, you cannot yet touch me. I'm not yet ascended to the Father. But go ahead and go tell them that by the time I get back and by the time you get to them, I'm going not just to my Father. Mary, I'm going to your Father. I'm going not just to my God. I'm going to your God. Notice the privilege of this relationship. You know what the privilege is? That you could know God the way Jesus knows God. That God would know you the way God knows Jesus. That you would have an intimate relationship. That God would not be held aloft and at a distance from you in an inaccessible way. But that God would swing wide the doors to His throne room and say, Son, come on in and sit down and tell me what's on your mind. What a glorious God we have. Listen, He does everything He can to get us to pray. He, he begs us. He, he, he berates us. Sometimes He beats me. Amen. And, and He'll bribe us even to try to get us to pray. You know why? Because He's a daddy that wants to hear from His children. What a glorious privilege it is that you could go in and just talk to God like He's your Father. You know why? Because He will be your Father. That's what the new birth that John talks about is about. Being born again into the family of God. Then what happens? Well, He is your Father and you're able to speak to Him. Notice the final thing. and I'll be done. I had six or eight more hours of message, but it's Easter and then brown and serve rolls are already burning. Amen. We didn't do no family thing. Mama's going to feel bad about me telling this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I give up on worrying about what she thinks years ago. We didn't have no we didn't have no Easter thing this year, just some things worked out that we couldn't. And I was thinking this morning, well, what I wouldn't give for some deviled eggs, some ham. I don't even like ham, but it's Easter. Some some green bean casserole and some brown and serve rolls that's a little black on top. Amen? That's Easter right there. And then some cheap, nasty chocolate. Amen? And Easter. It's Easter. 
And so I know, I know you have much you need to do today. But I do want you to notice one more thing. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, the children of Israel, when they would talk about their identity, they would often talk about how distinct they were, how different they were. And the theme of their message was this. We are not what you are. You're a Gentile. We are different. We are distinct. We are the people of God. And I don't mean that in an ugly way. Now, sometimes, undoubtedly, some of them manifested it in an ugly way. But God engrafted into their heart and mind this concept of, I'm different. I'm not like the rest of the world. And that was sort of the theme and the message. That was the bell that rung throughout all Old Testament revelation. You are a different people. You are a precious people. You are a peculiar people. You are different. And that was the theme that was given. Now, I want to be abundantly clear. All of those things still have New Testament truth. Hey, if you're born again, you ought to be a different person. You're of a different group, of a different crowd. When you got born again, you went from the old family to the new family. You went from death to life, and you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm not trying to mitigate any of that. But notice the message that the Lord Jesus gives to Mary Magdalene. He does not say, Mary, go back and tell him what a good Jew you are. Mary, go back and tell him what a great person you are. Mary, go back and tell him how at least you're not like them. Instead, what's the message? It says, go to my brethren and say unto them, I send unto my father and to your father. Even Peter, faithless, feckless Peter. Oh, yes, even Peter. Hey, hey, even John, sometimes timid, sometimes weak. John, oh, yes, even John. Go back and tell him. I send unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things unto her. What a beautiful encapsulation we have of the Gospel message. Notice in this new relationship the proximity, the privilege. Notice the proclamation of this relationship. Her job was to go and tell everybody two things. Go around and tell everybody. Go, Mary, find everyone you can and tell them. That you've seen it yourself. Jesus is alive. Can I tell you what happens when you get born again? You get called into the purpose, commission, calling, and ministration of going around and telling any and everybody that will listen to you that you've seen the Lord and that He's alive. That becomes the theme and the message of your life is He is risen, He is risen, He is risen. One of the favorite customs, and it is a custom, it is a tradition, but one of the things I enjoy about Easter Sunday is the way that often people will greet each other and they'll say, He's risen, He's risen indeed, He's risen. But I often wonder, how? how, how listen, we'll, we'll say it on this day, but what about other day? Are we willing to tell folks, hey, He's risen. He's risen on a Monday. He's risen on a Tuesday. He's risen on a day in the middle of June, and He's risen on Christmas morning. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Mary, go and tell them that you've seen the Lord. But not only that, tell them what He said to you. Tell them that He's made a way for you to have God as your Father. That God can be your Father and your God. That He's the way, the truth, and the life. And there, no man cometh unto the Father but by Him, but that any man can come unto the Father all through Him. If they'll just come to Him, He'll get them to God. If you'll just come to Jesus. You say, Preacher, I wouldn't pass a theology test. No, probably not. If I passed mine, I'd probably still get all the answers wrong. But can I tell you this? Hey, I, I may not know much, but I know Him. I know that there was a day as a ten-year-old boy when I acknowledged and admitted myself a lost, broken sinner and asked God to forgive me and save me. And ever since that day, He's been my Father and He's been my God. He'll do for you what He did for me if you'll just come to Him. Mary, go tell Him you've seen Him. And go tell Him that He'll do for them what He's done for you, Mary. What a glorious thing it is that you and I would be enlisted in this great cause. And what a simple, blissful thing it is 
hey, you don't have to have that theology degree, but you have to have a clear understanding of the gospel and have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I, all the time I have people tell me, well, preacher, I don't know if I could witness people. Sure you can. You've been born again, you can. So how do I do that, preacher? Well, tell them what happened to you and tell them that God will do it for them too. Tell them that you came as a lost sinner in need of salvation. God forgave you and, and, and saved you and that He'll do the same for them. What a glorious thing. Hey, this was a great anticipation. i got about six hours more message if you're willing to stand around, but I don't think you are. So let's end there. But I, I want you to think this morning about your relationship with the Lord. Can you say 100% before God? You know, you might as well be honest with God. He knows. Can you admit to God and say honestly before God, I know if I died, I'd know I'd go to heaven. And I know that because He's living in me right now. I have new life in Christ Jesus. You say, preacher, I'm afraid of death. What's the answer? New life. New life. Now, that don't mean that there's not a natural caution, apprehension of death. There is if we want to survive. But I'm saying that we can master that fear. How do we do that? We do that through new life in Christ Jesus. Once you've had new life, you ain't got to worry about old death. Have you done that in your life? If you've not, I hope you'll not leave here today before you come to the Lord. You can come meet Him at this altar. We'll take a Bible and pray with you and show you how to be saved. If you just want to pray on your own, we'll respect that. But please don't leave here today before you've settled this matter with the Lord. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is already open. If I'm being honest, it's been open since the door was open. Uh, and so you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You don't have to wait for anything to be said or any prayers to be made. If God spoke to your heart about something, won't you slip out of your seat right now and come find a place at this altar? Hey, there's a living Savior this morning. He's waiting for you. Uh, this altar ain't the only place He lives, but it's a good place to come down and meet Him. He'll meet you in this place. If God spoke to your heart, why don't you find a place in this altar? Let the Lord have your heart and your mind today. Father, bless this invitation. We love you, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. With